Hey, podcast listeners. I hope by now you've heard about Somley, a new direct-to-consumer marketplace for Artisan Texas Wine. If you're a Texas winery, claim your free winery page today. Soon you'll be able to list all of your wines and club memberships for wine lovers to purchase on Somley.com. If you're a wine consumer like me, search for your favorite local wineries on Somley and give them a great review. Please join me in spreading the word and helping folks discover the Texas wine industry. Follow Somley.wine on Instagram for the latest updates. Welcome to This is Texas Wine. I'm Shelley Wilfong, a wine educator, writer, and Texas wine enthusiast. On this podcast, I share Texas wine news, interview the most important people in the Texas wine industry, and bring you the information you need to be a more informed Texas wine drinker. Thanks for joining me on this Texas wine journey. This is episode 45. Today, my interview features Michael Bilger of Adega Vino. We get specific about the terroir in the Texas Hill Country, talk about efforts to add sub-AVAs to the Texas Hill Country Appalachian, and discuss modern agricultural practices that are being implemented in the Bilger family vineyard. You're sure to learn a little something about soil health, Portuguese wine varieties, and what's so special about the Texas Hill Country. First, I'll give a rundown of how Texas wine is showing up in the news. Whether you're a regular listener or joining in for the first time, welcome to This is Texas Wine. The Wine and Food Foundation Toast of Texas is happening June 5th at Star Hill Ranch. You've heard me mention this before, and today I'm sharing with you five reasons why I hope you'll attend. Number five, there are 28 wineries currently signed up to pour for you, and that's even more than were on site last year. Not only will you get to visit with some of your old favorites like Pedernales, Ron Yates, William Chris, and Becker, but you'll also get to visit with some wineries that are new to this event, and they include Wedding Oak, Nobleman, Pebble Rock Cellars, Coleman Cellars, and Texas Heritage Vineyards. There'll be no shortage of great wine. Number four, the wineries really bring their A-game to this event. It's not just another wine festival. It's a real celebration of Texas wine and winemakers. And the winemakers themselves, as well as winery owners, have a tendency to show up personally to pour for this event and to mingle with other people that love Texas wine. Last year was the first time I attended, and I got to meet Jason Centani, the winemaker of Llano Estacado, and I also had great conversations with Ron Yates and with Randy and Brooke Hester of Ciel Buto, and many more. Number three, there are top-notch food options at Toast of Texas. This year, you can expect barbecue and paella, so come hungry. Number two, not only can you taste great wines there, but you can actually buy wines that you've tasted. HEB is the presenting sponsor for Toast of Texas, and they coordinate purchases so that you can pick up your wines later at your local HEB. It's such a cool service. Not all of the wines that you'll be tasting at the event are usually available at HEB, so HEB is really going above and beyond to make this happen. You'll even be able to order the wines that are being presented at the members-only VIP event that precedes the main event. That portion of the day is sold out, but you can still enjoy the wines that are being recognized as my top Texas wines of 2022. And number one, the final reason to attend is to get to be a part of the good work that the Wine and Food Foundation does for the wine and food community. The organization was established in 1985, incorporated in 1997, 
And the Wine and Food Foundation has awarded more than $1.6 million in grants, scholarships, education, and hospitality industry support. It's a strong community of wine and food lovers and a strong supporter of Texas wine. There's all kinds of great education happening through the Wine and Food Foundation, and you'll definitely want to be a part of it. And on a personal note, the last reason that I hope that you'll come is to come say hi to me. This is my first time to participate in an event like this, and the podcast is actually the media sponsor for the event. I'm hoping that many of you will be able to attend, and I hope that you'll come say hi. Again, the event is on Sunday, June the 5th at Star Hill Ranch in Bee Cave. It's from 2 to 4.30 p.m. If you don't already have tickets, you can still get them and use the code SHELLY for $10 off the ticket price at every level. That's at the winefoodfoundation.org website, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Two of the best-known wine writers in the country recently participated in a Texas wine media tour that was sponsored by the Texas Department of Agriculture's Texas Wine Marketing Program, Uncorked Texas Wines. I've mentioned Dottie Gator and John Brescher before. They wrote the Wall Street Journal's wine column for 12 years, and they're the founders of Open That Bottle Night. And they're also the authors of one of my favorite wine memoirs. It's called Love by the Glass, Tasting Notes from a Marriage. Although Dottie and John have written about Texas wine from time to time, this trip was their first wine trip to Texas. And from the photos I saw, it looked like there were about eight or nine wine writers from all over who were treated to several days of winery visits and Texas wine dinners, including one at the Cabernet Grill. Wineries from all over the state were included in this showcase. It wasn't just those in the Hill Country. Gosh, how do you get on that invite list? Well, as far as wine writers go, Dottie and John are most definitely in the Hall of Fame, so I was happy to see that they wrote their first article about Texas, and it was just published on their website, which is grapecollective.com. Their article is worth reading in its entirety, but I want to highlight just a couple of their main points. The article is called Tasting Texas, Tempranillo, Tourism, and Tesla. Well, right off the bat, you know that this article is going to continue to ignite discussion over whether or not Texas needs a signature grape variety. Even Dottie and John say that this is a marvelously controversial topic. Their first point, and I quote, Texas's signature red will be Tempranillo, and white will be Viognier, or not. They say that Texas is so large that many in the industry don't think it needs or can have a signature, but they would argue that wine regions require one or two to cut through the noise. For instance, New Zealand Sauve Blanc, Malbec from Argentina, or even New Mexico sparkling wine. They quote Ron Yates, and of course, he's a huge Tempranillo advocate. Well, as you can imagine, this topic was met with some swift disagreement in a post in a Texas wine Facebook group. And even Ben Calais chimed in, pointing out that the fact that Viognier yields close to nothing every other year means it cannot be an option to be the grape of Texas. And he thinks Tempranillo is equally unsuitable for such claim due to equally low winter survival. He said that after the frost of 2019, he believes that many High Plains grape growers have abandoned both of those varieties and moved on to varieties that survive our winters better and have a chance to produce great wines every year. He says that's just his two cents. Dottie and John note that this is a 
a really special and personal time in the Texas wine industry when you can still feel the presence and often meet the offspring of those that made the Texas wine industry what it is today. They say, we can imagine that at some point the industry will consolidate or see inroads from out-of-state giant producers, so now is a special time. In the article, they recognize the rapid growth of the wine industry in Texas, the significant roles that women hold as winemakers and winery owners in Texas, and that the California to Texas pipeline is getting stronger as more and more wine professionals are coming to Texas from California. They've also identified what they consider a fundamental question that must be answered, and it's this, what's driving Texas wine? They note that in many regions like Napa, great wine came first and tourism followed. Yet in Texas, tourism seems to be the driver. They ask the important question, what if tourists don't care about wine quality? They mention that they tasted several excellent wines in their journey to Texas, And they mentioned specifically the Pinot Noir from Ready Vineyards, which is the only Pinot they saw, Tanat from Bending Branch, a Grenache Syrah Morved or GSM blend from Becker Vineyard, a Malbec from Hidden Hanger, and the Roussan Marsan blend from Coleman Cellars. In conclusion, the article states, There is such a sense of excitement and pride in Texas wine country. We guess it will change as much in the next 10 years as it has in the past century, and it will be so interesting to watch and taste. For the full story, check out the link in the show notes. Among other things, you can read why Tesla made it into the article's title, and it's related to a quote that John Catalano of Bent Oak Winery made. Congratulations to Sandy Road Vineyards in Johnson City for being featured in Kathleen Wilcox's article, Four Global Treehouse Tastings That Connect Wine and Nature. It just appeared in Wine Enthusiast. Sandy Road co-owner Brian Shagley says, When it came to creating a hospitality program, we wanted something fun and different that reflected our entire philosophy— We decided to build a treehouse in our big Texas live oak at the end of the vineyard, and we made it from recycled metal material. I haven't been to Sandy Road yet, and I'm super anxious to go. Austin Monthly knows what local wines to enjoy poolside this summer. They recommend Ray Wilson's La Valentia Chenin Blanc, the C.L. Buteau's Carbonic Sangiovese The Boge, Summer Revival Wine Company's Pinot Grigio that's made in a Ramado style with significant skin contact. That's a brand new winery in Dripping Springs, by the way. Alta Marfa's Canned Microcult White and the Austin Winery's Pink Salt, which is another canned wine. Texas Highways is showcasing a Johnson City spot where Texas-made wine and beer features prominently. Their article is called Nice and Easy Serves Craft Beer and Wine in One of Johnson City's Oldest Buildings. And the article goes on to explain how the space was restored. Apparently, there's been alcohol served there since around 1870. Adrienne Ballou is one of the partners. She's a winemaker at Southhold Farm and Cellar and also has her own label called Lightsome Wines. You can taste Lightsome Wines Morvedra there at Nice and Easy in Johnson City. Well, the weather is still making headlines in Texas. On May 5th, there was a hailstorm in the Johnson City Stonewall area. You may have seen Ron Yates' post showing a massive amount of hail on the vineyard in the front of his namesake winery. 
I saw Instagram posts featuring hail from West Cave Cellars and Southhold. Sandy Rhodes said that it wasn't bad at their place and they had their hail nets up. Lewis Wines said, glad we bought hail nets this year. Most everything was netted, but what wasn't netted got damaged. Kristen Nelson of Abastris Winery says it was a nail-biting moment, but the hail literally skirted around us. We lost most of our 2021 estate vintage to a freak hailstorm last year at this exact time. And my guest for today's episode, Michael Bilger of Adega Vino in Stonewall, said that they got light hail, but no significant damage to the vines. He said they were lucky because they didn't have their hail nets up yet. He said what's even more concerning is the recent heat. They've already had a couple of days over 100 and temperatures in the upper 90s for days in a row. He said the vines are still in a flowering and fruit set stage, which is the important time when flowers pollinate and each flower becomes a berry. It's a sensitive time in the life cycle of a grapevine. High heat and high winds are very concerning. They can cause shatter, or what the French call coulure, when stress causes the flowers to fall off and no fruit is made. So that's how it's looking in the Texas Hill Country. And in the High Plains, they still desperately need rain. Find links to all these stories in the show notes at thisistexaswine.com. And that's the Texas Wine News. Michael Bilger is my guest today. He co-owns Adega Vino with his brother Andy and sister-in-law Elena. The winery is located in Stonewall, among all of the winery activity between Fredericksburg and Johnson City in the Texas Hill Country. They founded the winery in 2016, and Michael is responsible for vineyard management and winemaking. Adega Vino is Portuguese for wine cellar, I believe. How, how is that part of your story? So that store is twofold. So we grow 12 acres of estate grown grapes at our, at our vineyard. And of those 12 acres, we grow nine varieties. Five of those nine varieties are, uh, either Portuguese, uh, or, or Iberian Peninsula origin, or they grow a lot in both Spain and Portugal. And those five varieties are Tinta Cal, Tariga Nacional, Susau, the white grape Arinto, and the white grape Alvarino. And that's the majority of our vineyard. We also grow Sangiovese, Tempranillo, and Morved, and a small amount of Cab Franc. The Portuguese, Spanish uh, stylings of wine uh, are reflected in our name. But then my brother and his wife uh, took a vacation to Portugal and just some of the cool places that they went to uh, shared the name Adega, which would be House of uh, in the translation. Um, but it also translates to wine cellar. So Adega Vino means wine cellar or house of wine, just depending on how you use it in conversation. Um, and so he sort of brought that spirit back. And when we were deciding on a name other than Bilger Family Vineyards, which is uh, our a state vineyard designated name, if you will. Uh, we thought that it would be nice to have a label name that reflected just sort of our stylings and a very general uh, idea that, you know, we want to produce Spanish and Portuguese style wines. But at the same time, we live in central Texas and we have the opportunity to grow grapes that 
uh, are very similar to, uh, you know, our warm weather, humid, uh, climate grapes that are also grown in that region and other regions in the world. So when you come out to visit our tasting room, there's a good chance you'll be able to taste a Texas Vino Verde style white wine. Uh, there's chances you'll be able to have a Tariga Nacional of 100% or a blended Tariga uh, and Tintacao. And we're not the first to do this, but we just thought it would be nice to reflect sort of uh, as a homage to uh, that growing region and their, their winemaking styles and their variety choices there. I would love to know what's going on in the vineyard right now. I know you've recently had bud break, so how are things yeah. going out in the vineyard? And tell me about some of your farming practices out there. So bud break uh, started about two weeks ago with our Sangiovese, Tintacao, and our Alvarino being the first three to start breaking bud about the same time. And Morved just started opening up uh, this weekend. So we're a solid two to three weeks into bud break. Um, usually that happens around the last week of March, mid-March. Uh, this year happened a couple weeks later. Um, so when bud break starts happening in the vineyard, we start gearing up for the growing season. Uh, we start watering, we start, um, we start applying, uh, compost teas to our soil. Um, and that is compost tea we make utilizes handfuls of dirt, uh, handfuls of silica sand, some unsulfured molasses as a feed, as a, as a food source for the microbes and um, maybe a little seaweed extract. Uh, and we, we create a tea with that. And that tea is full of essential microbes. And, and we inject that tea uh, in a few rounds during the spring while the, the vines are waking up. And that's just to, to uh, sort of like a vitamin. Uh, if you can make the comparison between compost teas and the use of microbes in vineyards, the comparison could be made to the human body. So, um, when we take antibiotics for, uh, let's say bronchitis, we take a, an antibiotic and that kills all the bad stuff. And then recently we've been learning that if you take a probiotic, you can fill in that void of, of essential microbes in your body and sort of replace the bad microbes that just were killed by the antibiotics and you replace those with good microbes. Well, in our vineyard this year, uh, we're taking compost tea and, and uh, uses of microbes and we're taking it a step further. We'll, we'll, we'll be spraying with microbes, uh, this year. They do a, a few things. So they, uh, they help the root zone and the rhizome, uh, area around the roots. Uh, they help with the exchange of nutrients and, and they help all of the mechanisms of nutrient intake into the root system. That's all done by microbes. Okay. And so they're the helpers, right? And so the simple idea is that the fewer helpers you have, the more that vine is going to stress or struggle to uh, take in nutrients. And that's the simplest way to put it. And so when we put our compost teas out, um, it's not a cure-all for anything. It's just like you and I taking a daily vitamin. It's just a little bit better for us, and it helps us out. Now, the, the big picture of the microbes is that over a few years of using these microbes in different applications, whether it's a foliar spray uh, during 
times that we have a lot of powdery mildew maybe, um, to injecting compost tea through the drip irrigation uh, that would help out with the root zone and just the overall soil health. It's a part of a bigger picture. It may help out a little bit this season, but after years and years and years of using this, we're, we're building up the beneficial microbes in our vineyard, which uh, I would just say that's sort of the leading edge of modern agriculture is harnessing beneficial microbes. So we're not some crazy people who are trying to make some like um, pokey pokey stew. We're just creating environments where beneficial microbes thrive and we're applying those microbes at the right time. And uh, in the spring when it's cooler before it really gets hot, we can make our plants more healthy so that it, when they do stress during the ripening and, and our extreme weather that we have and when those vines are stressing, they're a little bit stronger and maybe they're a little bit more immune to some of the things later on the season. So if you look at that as a giant picture, hopefully in five to ten years, through the use of microbes and, and farming practices, our vineyard's going to be that much stronger, creating better fruit and um it's real interesting just the science coming out of microbe use in vineyards and in all agriculture. Uh, they're finding out just five, ten years of use of uh, in certain situations. They have almost eliminated certain pests, uh, funguses. They haven't eliminated from the environment, but they've eliminated the stress to the plant because the plant's that much more strong. Um, so it has the ability to, you're just making your plants that much more strong. I'm glad that you brought brought that up because I noticed on your website you have a mission statement, which mm-hmm. I don't. I look at a lot of winery websites, and there aren't a ton that have a, an outlined mission statement. But part of yours was about good stewardship of the land and the environment. So, yeah. So if you're caring that much about the root zone and the microbes and the and the vine, that's just one example, I'm sure. So yeah. So so that's a little picture of a bigger picture. So with the use of microbes. With the use of, of irrigation and watering and, and waking our plants up, uh, we've also gone to no-till farming. Uh, to get to no-till, you have to till, okay? So when we first planted our vineyard, we had issues with mesquite. So we, we uh, have eliminated some of those issues with tilling um, early in the spring, uh, planting a spring cover crop, planting a fall cover crop, and sort of uh, using nature against herself and so we plant rye and oat in the uh, early fall and on years where we have rainfall that those grasses will squeeze out a lot of the fall and winter and early spring weeds Um, sometimes we can have that cover crop that rye grass stick around until june Uh, this last year when it was much cooler we had rye grass out mid mid july before it started dying off and so that was a beautiful cover crop. Um, the cover crops bring in pollinators. They bring in beneficial insects. Um, all of your lady bugs and your, your uh, green lace wings and your praying mantis, they love uh, ryegrass and they love uh, vineyards as well. So if you can kind of nurture that habitat is what we try to do and to have a diverse um habitat in your vineyard that's much better than having a monoculture a monoculture would be something that's all the same so uh 
textbooks. We like to look at textbooks a lot and we look at a picture and see a vineyard that has been tilled, um, so that there's zero, uh, competition from weeds and you have barren earth showing. Well, um, that may work well for you. I believe that the opposite is better. I believe that, you know, having weeds, having, uh, perennial flowers and perennial weeds and, and having those things growing in your vineyard is part of it. Now you need to control those weeds and you need to control those grasses. Um, but having all that is part of, uh, the vineyard. It's not just grapevines. We also want to include the insects, the microbial, uh, or the microbes that are living there. We want to include all the natural native grasses. And so there's a larger holistic view of viticulture that it's up to you to take and to learn. And we're trying out some new things in the vineyard. Um, one of the things, the beautiful things back to the microbe conversation is one of the, uh, side effects of a microbe, uh, is that they break down, uh, the synthetic fungicides and pesticides that we use in the vineyard at certain times of year, our, uh, fungicide, um, load is higher. And so maybe having a comp spraying compost tea as a foliar at night gives you a little bit of benefit to the plant, but maybe it helps decompose some of those synthetic fungicides a little bit faster than they would naturally. So maybe you're helping out a little bit. You can just influence that circle a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. farming practices right now is that we're allowing all of the, the cover crop and grasses to grow. And once they get tall, uh, we'll mow them. We'll mow them as close to the vines as possible. And we'll try to bring a, an herbicide spray and make a single band just directly underneath the vine, we're sort of aiming at about an eight inch stripe. We're not trying to get two feet on each side, just about eight inches. And then mowing will take care of the rest of the, uh, mm -hmm. the problem as far as grass and weeds. And so that's another approach. As our buds are opening up, we are helping nature out with our compost teas, our um, sulfur spray to, to ward off against powdery mildew uh, when it starts getting uh, a little humid out. We're also positioning and shoot thinning here in the next few weeks and uh, thinning out our canopy or our, our future canopy and getting our shoots tied in certain positions. And so the vineyard is just really gearing up right now. Um, it's a beautiful time to be in the vineyard. Uh, to see bud break and the, the month following bud break is beautiful. The colors and the aromas coming from the vines. Um, it's hard to explain in words. It's just something you have to experience being there. The fact that we're in a massive drought, how is that changing your day-to-day -day operations? Does that change anything with cover crops? Yep. So drought is a big thing right now. We haven't had much rain. We had a lot of rain all last year. It started off as a dry spring last year, and it turned out to be really wet. I think that's going to happen again this year, but I don't, I can't, you know, I would be in a different job if I could predict the weather in a month in <laughs> advance, right? It is very dry. We have cracks in our, especially in our areas that are heavy clay. We have cracks that we usually don't see until August and September, which is usually the time that it stops raining for the most part. So we're countering the drought right now with, uh, with irrigation. That's another reason why the compost tea is another important one is to just try to give 
as much um, hydration and everything that will go along with uh, a healthy vine. So we're irrigating a lot now. We're dripping water pretty much around the clock. And you would be surprised at how dry the earth is right now, is that when you let water uh, drip for five hours, you should have about five or six gallon puddle there, which usually is, you know, two and a half feet in diameter. And right now our the ground's just sucking up that water so much, it's not really even puddling much more than the diameter of, say, a basketball. The sponge, if you will, is dry. And so, <clears throat> luckily, luckily, uh, these are weather patterns that we, we knew we were going to have a dry spring. So, we'll see how the, the rest of the growing season turns out. Um, last year, at our location, you know, we talk about macro and microclimates. Well, macroclimate would be, you know, all of Central Texas or maybe... The Fredericksburg area weather. Well, on the microclimate level, our vineyard last year in July received 23 inches of rain where everyone else had like 14, 15 inches of rain in the area, which is still pretty heavy, you know, higher rainfall than usual. Um, there was times where we, we were getting rain and I swear the neighbors weren't, you know, every, every vineyard is going to have different weather climates and climates for the most part. And so, we just don't really know what Mother Nature, what she's going to throw at us this year, but we're hoping it's just a, a regular smooth season. Sure. Um, Absolutely. And then in the cellar, you've got some new toys, right? So we have a larger press and we have a conveyor now for our fruit. Last couple of years, we've had people come by and see us bucketing fruit from from our picking bin into our press or from the picking bin into the crusher destemmer. And uh, now we're going to eliminate all of those five gallon buckets and all of that manpower and labor. Uh, and we'll have a rotator on our forklift that we'll be able to pick a bin up a couple feet off the ground and be able to rotate it, dump it into a conveyor and, uh, feed the fruit, whether it's going to go straight to the tank or to the press. And so it's going to allow us to have happier, less stressful, uh, harvests. Yeah. Maintain your, your strong backs. The other way it sounds back. Right, right. Eliminate some of the manpower, um, yeah. but the wine quality is not going to change from that. That's just a, how we're going to deliver the wine. In fact, it may be softer on the grapes to just dump directly onto the conveyor and feed into the press rather than kind of digging through a bin with a five-gallon bucket. So we're looking forward this year. We're going to be, uh, we, you know, we have a few more tanks this year uh, that we were able to purchase um, earlier this month that will allow us to maybe fool around with some sparkling wines this year, maybe fool around with some pet nats or sparkling rosés. So it's just another uh, tool with the new tanks and, and uh, cooling system that we have, uh, just another tool to take our wine further and make it better, really. That's very exciting. Anytime yeah. somebody talks about sparkling rosé, my ears perk up just a bit. Well, we've done some experiments last few vintages, and uh, if we have the... I should say the quality and the time to do it. We may have a have a sparkling uh, rosé or two this year. But in the in the cellar uh, last year, I messed around with a lot of spontaneous yeast fermentations and um, cellar and those spontaneous yeast fermentations on neutral oak, uh, which is our Tinta Tariga blend uh, that we just released. It's a uh, 100% natural wine. Went through a spontaneous. Uh, fermentation which is just the yeast from the vineyard and the the cellar uh fermented 
both the Tariga and the Tinta Cow to dry. And we monitored those fermentations. They went lovely. They produced a lot of different aromatics and just a certain uniqueness to that wine that is different from the other wines that we've produced from the estate, uh, allowing native ML to work in barrel. Um, it didn't finish all the way, but it just gives a, another dimension to the wine that um, is fun, unique, and it tastes good. And so that's an important issue. Is that your first time to do a native yeast fermentation? It's, our, it's not our very first time. No, we've done it in the past. Um, it would be our first time to, I would say, do native yeast fermentation with natural protocol. In the past, the, the native fermentations have been just sort of like, let's see if it works. This time I mm-hmm. took into account the temperature, the timing, how long we left it on the skins, the quality of the fruit. Um, it started at the, the minute we picked it, you know, when we picked the grapes, uh, all the way to bottling. So there's a little bit of SO2 used in the beginning and right before bottling to just slow the wine down. But there were no additives. There's no nutrients, no added yeast, no added tannins. And cellaring that wine on neutral oak gives us a truer definition of terroir. That's fun. There were still punch downs involved and whatnot in the winemaking process. Uh, but as far as... You know, it's a very simple wine, but when you when you have a tasting of it or a glass of it, it's not such a simple end result. You know, end product. It's, it's, it's a it's a big, beautiful wine that's very dynamic. So it just goes to show that if you're an opportunistic winemaker and you can afford the opportunity to make a wine different from another wine, you know, do it and see see what happens. And we've yeah. had some bad stories too. We've tried carbonic maceration a couple times and maybe we waited too long until until we we decided to start fermentation but we've had some stuff go south on us but they've been in in the experiment you know quantities uh that we're that we're gonna that we're gonna run with later on but all of our red wines and all of our estate wines have an element of native fermentation uh usually uh up front i allow all of our estate wines um, to begin fermentation spontaneously or naturally. Um, and some go all the way and some don't. Sometimes we inoculate mm-hmm. with yeast. Uh, sometimes we don't. And so those decisions are made usually um, based on a bigger idea of where we're going to take a wine. And then, you know, often we have this idea and then the fruit comes in, it may not be the best quality or it rains the day before we're going to pick. And we think, yeah, you know what? Maybe we'll just go ahead and inoculate our yeast. But we do a lot of minimal handling in the, in the cellar. Um, we use small little pumps or gravity often, uh, to move our wine. We really enjoy the fact that sometimes a barrel of wine will get the special treatment or the lack of special treatments or whatever it be. And we have a single barrel 24 case release of, you know, something natural and unfiltered. Does that mean that we're going to be advertising it as, you know, as a natural winemaker? No, but it's just sort of part of our uh, portfolio, if you will. I look at wine as being a craft and, um, you know, you can turn a craft into a, uh, food processing, you know, direction. You can, you can turn a craft into, you know, whatever it's going to be. But, um, 
within that craft are a bunch of different uh, tasks or procedures that, you know, some dibble dabble in science, some lean towards uh, philosophical winemaking, some just lead to, you know, utilitarian winemaking, wine that just has to be made a certain way for a certain reason. So, you know, uh, that's sort of the beauty of wine is that every winemaker makes wine differently. You've made a super interesting variety choice in the Arinto. I had never had that white grape variety before, and I understand that you're one of only a couple to plant it in Texas. Is that right? Yeah. So Doug Lewis, uh, I think he was the first to plant it, and uh, it's been successful for him on some blends. Uh, we were uh, going to originally plant an acre and a half of Alvarino and an acre and a half of Arinto, and the nursery uh, called us at the last minute and said that the Alvarino would be short. Do we want to replace it with any other varieties? And um, Andy went ahead and said, well, just make up the lack of, of Alvarino with a rinto. So we have roughly two acres of a rinto and a half an acre of Alvarino. Um, a rinto is a grape that's fairly new to the uh, United States. <clears throat> And for the fact that uh, the USDA allowed it to be um, grown and sold in uh, nurseries in the United States, you know, roughly 20 years ago. So um, the ability to buy a rinto and plant it in the ground is, is relatively new to the U.S. Now it grows in other wine-grown regions throughout the, United, or throughout the world. Um, and there are some people on the West Coast growing a rinto as well. So... Uh, we discussed the uh, potential of growing a rinto, and it lined up with the uh, warm weather grapes. It actually is one of the reasons why the, the main reason why we planted it is the ability to retain acidity, and um, it, it's a early ripener, and it uh, creates a, a cluster that is loose, and so it fits all these uh, things that we want uh, in our white grapes, and so. We originally planted 20 uh, test Arinto vines in 2017, and those uh, 20 vines produced beautiful clusters and, and nice wine. We made a gallon of wine on year three, uh, and we decided the next year we'd, we'd go ahead and, and plant an acre and a half of it, speed up a little bit. We got two acres out of it now, so it really does steer cool. our blends. Excellent. And I, I do want to talk about specifically where you are in the hill country. You're in Stonewall. Yes. Tell me how you landed on that property and what is special about it. When Annie and I were deciding where we were going to grow grapes, uh, we had a few ideas. And at, at first, just due to geographic you know, proximity, uh, we were going to grow grapes in the Wimberley area. Uh, at the time, I was closer to Wimberley than I was Stonewall. And that's where Andy and his wife live. Uh, fast forward a couple years of looking at different properties and almost pulling the trigger on places to grow grapes. Um, our property wasn't the best. It had no topsoil. It was uh, caliche uh, and rock for the most part. And we knew that we would have to have healthier dirt, if you will and being a, in an area that would be more sustainable uh, for agriculture. 
Andy and Elena just happened to see a property in 2016 that was for sale. And uh, we went and checked it out. And it used to be a sheep farm that had peaches growing on it back in the 70s. Had been a horse farm. And that's the old Schaefer-Cater property on uh, 1623 where we're located. So in uh, 2016, uh, we bought that 25-acre property. Uh, Now we're at 37 acres um, with 12 acres planted on it. And you like the soil content better there. So the soils of our vineyard are mostly uh, heavy clay, sandy loam. But we have some areas that are mostly limestone sands. It's almost so fine that it's almost like talcum powder. All those soils were many, many moons ago, uh, alluvial uh, deposits. So that's all uh, deposits of the Pernalis River Pernalis River, a long, 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 long time ago, was a river, if you will, or a glacial, um, you know, glaciers drain into the Gulf of Mexico. And so for a long time, there was lots and lots of floods in the area, and they deposited very diverse sands. So at our vineyard, we have red clay that is heavy sandy loam with bits of flint and granite and finely decomposed granite, uh, and then a few hundred feet in another area where the Morved's growing. Uh, it's what they call Pernalis quicksand, which is just almost like talcum powder, uh, limestone sand with not much organics in it. It's very deep. Um, and you go maybe a mile closer to the river, say along 290 over where William Chris is, they have the same soils, but they also have some darker, uh, more black uh, soil with the lack of clay in those areas over there. So, you know, those are three very, very diverse uh, soils. So you have a lot of different um, soil diversity in the hill country. What I like about our soil is that it's limestone uh, rich. So we have a lot, a lot of limestone in our soil. So I believe that affects uh, our terroir. The clay allows us to retain more uh, moisture in the soil. A lot of the world's famous wine-growing regions like to talk about their uh, abundance of limestone in the soils, so we're lucky to have that in Stonewall. What's so special about the Texas Hill Country, and why did you decide to go there, and why do you love it? Well, aside from the growing of the grapes in the Hill Country and how special that is to us, um, there's an element that I think is real important, and that's uh, the people of the Hill Country. The people of the Hill Country, you know, steer our wine and, and, and how we experience it so, so much. Um, you just have such a diverse uh, community of people in the area, from winemakers to wine professionals to uh, people who just are, you know, enophiles, people who just love wine. And those people exist throughout the whole world and every region and all throughout our state, but there just happens to be a larger population here in central Texas than maybe out in the high plains or in East Texas. Uh, so the human element of, uh, the Texas Hill country, uh, is a very important one. We have a lot of giant personalities, a lot of experience in making wine, and there's a lot of, uh, experimentation in our winemaking out here in the Hill country that really adds to just the experience. Third on that uh, list is just the beauty of the hill country. Um, They always say grapes grow in beautiful areas, and that's very true. I never want to take away from the uh, special beauty of a specific area, 
you know, Brownfield has its own set of qualities and its own beauties and the sunsets are amazing out there. But, uh, as the sun sets over, you know, the Western edge of, uh, Fredericksburg as the sun sets, it's just beautiful. And so, uh, there's also that, that quality about the hill country and that it can be romanticized through pictures and paintings and writings. Uh, you can learn a lot about the culture, just, you know, looking at the people coming in and out of these tasting rooms. So, and great uh, parties down there. I mean, really fun parties. We know how to barbecue and we know how to, uh, uh, cook food and enjoy eating it, and, and we enjoy, enjoy drinking the local wines too. So good times, yeah. good times around wine. That's what it's all about, right? Yes. I thought it was so interesting when we walked to your vineyard that you said that you have to treat the different parts of your vineyard differently based on the soil type, yeah. from a nutritional standpoint and an irrigation standpoint, and there are probably other ways too. But even within you know, a relatively small footprint, things are, mm-hmm. are so different that your farming practices have to match what's going yeah. on right in that spot. So for example, we have two plantings of Morved. We have an acre and a half of Morved that's at the highest point of our vineyard, which is about 1500 feet above sea level. Uh, and the lowest point of our vineyard, which is maybe 15 feet lower than that, uh, where uh, we have another close to an acre planted in that, what we're calling the Pertinalis quicksand, um, which is like beach limestone sand, but very fine grain. And it's very deep in that area. So our watering in that area is more. We also apply some micronutrients in that area. Uh, we don't till or um, uh, do anything other than mowing of the grass in that area. So we need a cover crop to, uh, keep the, keep the erosion down to keep the wind from blowing around, keep that, uh, sand cool, uh, during the hot summer months. If you have exposed white sand, just think of that as a mirror. So you're reflecting radiation from the sun off the ground into your, uh, fruit zone and your canopy. And, you know, we're looking for a homogenous growing. And so we don't want to have more bed that may ripen, uh, two weeks faster than the Morved that's 600 feet away. And, you know, take that with a grain of sand. I'm not sure if it is going to be two weeks faster or slower, but there will be a significant difference. Um, And so say I'm going to pick all that Morved for red wine. Well, then I'd be separated uh, in our picking. So um, that's not a big thing. So more on the nutrient side, uh, the sand is going to have less microorganisms in it less nutrients, less of all the good stuff that we're looking for. So uh, the grapes are going to grow differently in that uh, area. And how much wine are you guys producing? We produce, uh, I was aiming at 3,500 cases last year. So we've we've started at 600 cases, uh, and that would be our 2016 Syrah and uh, 2016 Tempranillo. Every year we, we increase our production. So 16 was 300 cases. And in 2017, we increased to about 1,600 cases. In 2018 and 2019, we're sitting right about 2,000 cases. 2021, we produced 3,200 cases. And Andy and I plan on stopping at 3,500 cases, which was the goal last year. And we were almost there. We processed roughly 76 tons of fruit last year. And 26 to 28 of those tons came from our estate. We also buy 
fruit from other hill country uh, growers. So last year we bought fruit from Texas Hills and Rob Parr and Mason. Uh, so that would be a Mason grower and a Johnson City grower. Uh, and then we bought about close to 15, 20 tons from the high plains last year. And so I w- that would be three quarters hill country, maybe a quarter high plains. Uh, but back in 2016 and 2017, that was a hundred percent Texas high plains, uh, since our estate vineyard wasn't producing grapes. Um, uh, and, and our con, you know, we didn't know as many growers in the hill country as we do now. The grapes that you're getting out of the high plains, um, are you sourcing things that just aren't available in the hill country? Or do you think that there are just certain things that grow better there? Well, I would say that this is like a three prong question, right? So the varieties that we're getting from the Texas high plains, are some of the varieties are, are overlapping with the varieties that we're getting that we're buying for and growing in the Texas Hill Country. The available tonnage in the Texas Hill Country is smaller uh, than the High Plains, and so so you just need more fruit. <laughs> yes, well, I need some more fruit to be able to have the ability to produce, you know, a GSM. So I'll need Grenache and Syrah, and right now Grenache and Syrah in the Hill Country are very difficult to uh, to buy from other growers. And since we don't um, grow those two varieties, the High Plains is where I look to, and we have some great relationships with some growers out there. There is some uh, something to be said about the chemistry of the grapes coming from the Texas High Plains, and uh, you know their season is a, roughly three weeks to a month later than it is in the Hill Country. Uh, so when we're winding down our harvest, uh, generally speaking. The High Plains harvest is gearing up or had just started. There are varieties out there, yeah, that uh, may shine a little bit brighter uh, due to just growing uh, aspects. The People like to say diurnal shift. You know, if you want to catch some attention at a uh, cocktail party, start talking about <laughs> diurnal shift and you'll, right. you'll, you'll uh, garnish some, some ears. So varieties like Grenache, do a little bit better, I would say, um, ripening in the high plains uh, and retaining a chemistry with a higher acid or a higher P, excuse me, a lower pH um, than maybe the hill country. But that's not always across the board. Yeah, a lot, a lot goes into that. I'm learning a lot more than mm-hmm. just the diurnal shift. Which we have a diurnal shift in the hill country. <laughs> it's so just small. We have one. It may just be smaller. So mm-hmm. actually, can I can I just start talking about the hill country here? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I love about our vineyard in Stonewall is the fact that we have beautiful soils. We have a fairly moderate uh, climate for Texas. Uh, in the beginning of the summers, we do have a larger diurnal shift, if you will. So diurnal shift just means that at night the temperature uh, drops. And the physiology of the grapevine is that it continues to grow. You know, it it really, really, really enjoys the temperatures of 58 to, you know, roughly 94. After about 94 degrees Fahrenheit, the vine will shut down and just start to protect itself against heat stress. But somewhere between 58 degrees and the, the mid 90s, some real some real interesting things happen. So, as the temperature starts to cool in the evening, and as the sun goes down, the vine starts to shut down its ripening uh, mechanisms, and it stops ripening the fruit. Uh, so, 
you could say that it takes a rest in the evening. Um, when that all happens, there is a shift in the pH and it, it'll continue to climb throughout the day and, and through research and just tasting and, you know, a hundred years of observations or more with grapevines, we find out that in the evenings and as the, the vines cool down and the fruit cools off, the pH will become more acidic. And there's a lot of other things going on in that grapevine phys- physiology, but that allows many different things to happen in the vine uh, to create the fruit uh, that we want to, to make wine. And um, having those uh, ripening hours cool off at night can lead to a more optimum picking chemistry, if you will. Yeah, that's, that's ideal. So in the beginning of the summer, we have these uh, beautiful opportunities with our whites and if we're, if we're getting into rosés in the hill country. So uh, that's one of the reasons we uh, enjoy the Alvarino and the Arinto growing on the estate. That uh, Last year was the first harvest of that fruit and um, it wouldn't matter where you were in the world, the Arinto and Alvarino's chemistry was perfect when we picked it. It was about 21 and a half, 22 bricks. Um, and it was about 3.35, 3.4 pH. Uh, we didn't have to acidify that wine and it made, uh, some beautiful wines that we're uh, just now about to release in our tasting room. Um, was that going to happen every year? Hopefully. Uh, but we have many more challenges in the hill country for growing, uh, grapes than other parts of the world. Um, and so we had that beautiful aspect of the weather. Uh, the differences in the soil are a big thing. So we touched on that a few minutes ago. Um, so at our estate vineyard, we have clay rich, sandy loam with, uh, lots of different granite deposits, mica, schist, flint, um, that all goes into a big slurry, right? That sits on top. That would be our topsoil in our estate vineyard. And that topsoil or that big slurry of, of clay, uh, sand and, uh, rocks can be anywhere from six inches thick to about two feet deep. And underneath that is what we call a hard pan layer. And that is a porous layer of limestone rock that is anywhere at, you know, six, eight inches deep to, uh, a little bit over two feet. Uh, and that that's in a thickness of one inch to about six inches throughout the entire vineyard until you get down low to where that Perdinalis quicksand is. Um, then that hard pan, we actually haven't reached it for the most part, uh, when we've dug, but underneath that hard pan is that, that fine grained, sand. So we're able to see almost three layers of our topsoil and subsoils um, at our vineyard. Where did you learn all this about viticulture and winemaking? So I originally worked for Bella Vista Ranch in Wimberley uh, back in 2008. And that got me into the uh, interest in wanting to grow grapes. We had built some vineyards out there and um, started growing Sangiovese and Cab Franc out there. Uh, while that was going on, my brother uh, had been talking for years about growing grapes in Texas for numerous reasons, and he had spent a lot of time in California, so he had seen the kind of the, the beauty of the vineyard as well. Um, 
he took a direction of botany and chemistry in college. So he has that background. Um, I took a direction of environmental geography. So when we're talking about uh, dirt and sedimentary level or sedimentary levels and, you know, weather and rainfall, both of us have a nice little background in that. You know, fast forward a few years later, Andy and I really wanted to grow grapes in Texas. We saw people doing it um, on a commercial scale. I had a cousin that was involved uh, in the kind of the agricultural programs at Texas A&M and Texas Tech. And so he had friends that were getting into viticulture. And some of those guys later got into the enology side. So that would be the winemaking side. Um, and I was just born with a, a pretty heavy green thumb, if you will. Uh, I've always had an interest in plants and uh, had been in and out of horticulture and agricultural jobs for a long time. And uh, once we had our mindset on planting grapes, you know, there was some sort of spark both in me and my brother. And I can't really put my finger on it, but there was, you know, we got bit with the, the grape growing bug that later turned into uh, the winemaking bug. And uh, there's just a lot of beauty in growing grapes, a lot of history in growing grapes. There's a lot of cool science of winemaking. Uh, I wish I had an answer on it. You know, I didn't have a bottle of wine and had an awe inspiring moment. And, uh, uh, the wine gods didn't come and talk to me. It happens all different ways. Yeah. So, um, I think it was a culmination of ideas and, uh, both, both my brother and I got excited about, uh, our initial ideas and we ran with them. I'm very, science and hands-on uh motivated if you will or or i see a lot of things as you know you can see the beauty in things and then there's a question of why is that beautiful you know and so like you can describe you know it's beautiful because it's this color or that color but then if you really take out a microscope and look at things like the uh the physiology of the grapevine i find a lot of beauty in just the growing of the grapes uh, and the making of the wine as well. So that's one of the parts that keeps me going is just that, um, just that interest, I guess. I don't know how to put it into words mm -hmm. so much, but I hope it's reflected in our wines. There's something that I've heard so many times that I just always took for granted and never really thought that, that hard about, but I'm understanding it more and more, the more I learn about viticulture and it's that, you know, great wine starts in the vineyard. And of course you yes. say, well, yeah, of course it does. But everything about winemaking changes because of what happens in the vineyard. And that's mm -hmm. what I'm understanding more deeply. Well, that's a very true. So that opens up a huge conversation piece. So um, let's see, where do we want to start with this? So a good way to look at that is, you know, the argument of where terroir starts and where it stops. Um, so there's two real uh kind of ways to view terroir. And so um, terroir is the environmental side of, uh, of the wine, if you will. So that's the soil that the grapes grow in, the weather that the grapes grow in. It's the physical uh, science behind the growing of the grapes and location-oriented, right? And so the terroir between Rob Parr's Vineyard in Mason, Texas or excuse me, Mason County, it's really uh, in the town, a little town of grit, <clears throat> is going to be completely different than the terroir 
in Stonewall at Adega Vino. So even though we may be in the same AVA, the Texas Hill Country AVA, uh, our vineyard is heavy clay, sandy loam soils, whereas his vineyard is going to be decomposed granite with limestone sands and a very uh, minimal amount of clay. So there's not a lot of stuff holding that sand and granite together, whereas at our vineyard, we have a lot of iron-rich clay. So there's just the soil alone. Now we're going to look at elevation. Our vineyard's 1,500 feet above elevation, or sorry, above sea level, and Rob Parr's vineyard's 1,700 feet above sea level. That's only a difference in 200 feet, but our location is within about 40, 50 miles of the Edwards Escarpment, which will have a little bit more violent weather. Uh, our wind, our weather uh, patterns change a little bit faster, even though we're only roughly 60 miles from that vineyard in Mason. He has a little bit more predictable weather uh, coming in off the high plains. Um, so you have the weather component. Our uh, our temperatures at night are going to be drastically different during the summer. So in Stonewall, when the sun starts going down, uh, let's say at the peak of ripening, we may be sitting at a 95 degree high and say our low of the night is 83 degrees. I can almost guarantee you that the low at that time of night at Rob Parr's vineyard is maybe going to be 68, 70 degrees in the evening. And we may have had the almost close to the same high. So his diurnal shift is going to be greater, if you will. So cooler evenings. Now that's a microclimate up there where he is. And we have a microclimate in Stonewall as well. But they're very different, even though they're only 60 miles apart. So we could talk about sub-AVAs in a minute uh, and how that can go into the, to the terroir. Another element of the terroir, you know, where does that stop? Does that go into the cultural um, management of your vineyard? So by cultural management, uh, the culture of growing grapes in the hill country is, for the most part, vertical shoot position trellis. Every shoot is, for the most part, hedged right before verasion and then another time right before we pick. And the canopy management is roughly the same. Uh, for the most part, we're irrigating off of uh, well water. But that water changes. The farming practices change. Uh, so we could say that's terroir. Um, some people would argue that it's not. Uh, and then it can actually shift into the, uh, to the cellar as well. So does the winemaker choose to take the grapes on a path that will express the terroir or does the winemaker choose to uh, take the grapes along a journey that expresses um, added elements to the wine say uh, lots of oak on a red wine or lots of uh, oak on a white wine a little bit of oak can elevate or lift some of that terroir but an unbalanced oak regimen could completely cover up the terroir. Are we going to take a nice long press cycle on our uh, hill country grown Chardonnay? And that nice long press cycle will push out all the tannin and the skins and the seeds and will probably allow us to have 
a higher amount of potassium in the wine that's going to be squeezed out that'll later add to tartrates falling out so we're going to have a larger some would use the word flabby but let's say a larger bigger bodied white wine as opposed to a quick short press cycle that will just give us the juice and not a lot of stuff from the skins and seeds and that'll allow us to have a little bit more elegant possibly drive the wine to a more uh, crispier acid-driven wine. So those are decisions made in the winery that can affect the terroir. So personally, I believe that the terroir encompasses all the environmental factors, and we're part of that environmental factor as much as we want to be or not be. So as the farmer, and in my case, I'm also the winemaker, I really get to pick and choose, um, and I don't know all the techniques, but I get to pick and choose the techniques that will make our vineyard shine as far as the terroir, the growing um, area, and to make the grapes that we grow from other people's vineyards shine. We try to do that as much as possible. Some years, the quality of the grapes may not be the best, um, or the, you know, and so we may cover that up with some oak, or, uh, you know, there's many different directions you could get you could take the grapes to make the wine. Um, but we chose, we choose to, to go a direction that's going to express that terroir. And so kind of back to the, uh, original sort of, sort of question of does the terroir end in the vineyard? I believe it doesn't. I believe that we affect the terroir. Now it has to stop somewhere, right? Um, I joke around saying that the vintage starts for the most part in March and it ends when you open that bottle of wine and, and taste that wine in the bottle, the finished product. And some argue that that's not the entire vintage. Um, so, you know, the entire vintage of 2021 is still long living in that bottle, or the entire vintage of 2012 is still in that bottle because wine is alive inside that bottle. Um, so we're taking these uh, fine ideas and making them more general, bigger philosophical pictures. But um, that's the way I think about wine. And back to, you know, comparing uh, Rob Parr's uh, vineyard and our vineyard. Our soil at Adega Vino, Bilger, the Bilger family vineyard estate, 12 acres is planted in Pernalis River sediment. The soils at the Parr vineyard are decomposed granite and sands from the upper hickory outcropping and the upper hickory outcropping is uh, an aquifer and so that's one of the reasons the american indians settled that area is, is so many natural springs but the uh the upper hickory is is an area that has been inhabited for pretty much the longest period in uh our history that we know of here in Texas. And it's because of those natural wells and all those natural mm. springs in those areas. Anyway, That's cool. so his irrigation water, yeah, his irrigation water is a lot different from our irrigation water. There's a feature in a lot of hill country wines that we talked about as far as an aroma or a flavor that you say um, you find in a lot of different producers in the hill country. And you know what I'm talking about? Well, uh, so this is what I believe. So there is an aroma and a flavor, I believe, of uh, blueberry and, and that you get off of some of the red wines that's grown in uh, the Hill Country, especially in the Fredericksburg, Johnson City. Uh, there's also 
in white wines and rosés can be a bit of minerality um, that we used to describe. And, you know, that's a loaded word, minerality. Um, that can be a chalkiness, a dryness, just like a, uh, a sensation of a natural element. And uh, did I kind of hit it? Close to where you were talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was thinking of blueberry. Yeah. Um, for sure. And so now every time I'm drinking something from the Hill Country, I'm looking for it. Well, which is probably my mind playing tricks on me. You know what? It's a, it's a beautiful element of Hill Country wines. Uh, often when we talk about Tempranillos and Tariga Nationales and, um, you know, Merlot and uh, these, these red wines that are grown in the Hill Country, blueberry. You know, whether it's on the finish, whether it's on the forefront of the of the palate, uh, depending on what style the wine was made, is usually pretty pre- prevalent. And uh, I tell people at our tasting room to try our 2019 Morved next to our 2019 Tempranillo, and it has some similar finish. And blueberry is a prominent uh, flavor on that, and uh, you know, that's what makes the Hill Country special and unique. Is that we're starting to see. Um, you know, every vintage, there's certain little, uh, components of the wine that are, are kind of true to the area, if you will. Um, you know, Chris Brundrett does a great job over at William Chris and talking about those, uh, similarities. Um, but so does Benedict Rhine and so does a lot of other, so do a lot of other winemakers in the area. Uh, and so as we, you know, move forward and we can kind of shape what we're given, right? So we're given some of these beautiful components of wine and they're given to us. And and we have, um, as winemakers, we have the job to, uh, take those flavors or take those profiles and shape them into something that is a finished product. And, uh, you know, that isn't so much of a job, I believe, as it is, uh, maybe a calling or for some people, but that's another that's another discussion, right? So, anyway, <laughs> I noticed that uh, when we were tasting that you've got some really unique blends. Yeah, and I wonder if you can talk about your thinking around um, single varietal wines and blending. Okay, so I think of our wines every vintage uh, into a couple different components. So I first think about what we're harvesting at the estate. Then I think about you know the growing year. And I may think about what we're buying from another hill country uh, grower, and then you know what what are we what are we going to receive from the Texas High Plains? Um, so those are where the kind of the starting points. So when it comes to the blends, let's use our Arinto Chardonnay uh, white wine blend of 2021. That's one that has a lot of people just kind of turning their necks when they come into the uh, to the tasting room. So that wine was roughly 20, 25% Chardonnay that was picked at Texas Hills uh, in Johnson City. And the Arinto was some of our crop uh, that was grown at our, at our vineyard in Stonewall. The original plan was to have, you know, the Arinto was going to only be our state wines and that wasn't going to be blended with anything else. Well, when we went to pick the Chardonnay, the crop wasn't as impressive as we would have wished, but that was out of the grower's hands. That was out of our hands. We had significant rainfall. Uh, we had some really bad weather uh, last year in the hill country. 
And so as a result of that, our tonnage was very low on the Chardonnay, but of the Chardonnay that we picked, it was pretty good, but it wasn't enough to make a lot of wine. And so we had roughly 500 pounds of fruit, and that's about enough to fill half of a barrel, maybe a little bit more than a half of a barrel. And so the sort of last-minute decision you make as a Hill Country winemaker is that, well, we need a similar grape to pair this with, and just drinking a Rinto on its own, drinking Vino Verdes, and really enjoying the Chablis, really enjoying different Chardonnays from around the world. Those two grapes go hand in hand. They have a lot of similarities uh, as far as flavor profiles go, which way you can steer the the wines. Uh, so just naturally, the Arento, I thought, well, here's a way to get some more acid back into that Chardonnay. And where the Arento is lacking is going to be kind of structure. So on the Arento, you have a lot of lemon, lime, a teeny bit of spiciness. But for the most part, it's an acid-driven grape. And then on the Chardonnay, we had Chardonnay that was a little bit ahead on the ripening. And we had uh, a little bit more mature seeds, more mature skins. So that's just going to give you a bigger wine with more levels, right? Uh, More layers of um, maturity. And so naturally, to me, it makes sense to uh, boost the acid. And then you have the savory aspects of the uh, more ripened Chardonnay. And so... Together, it made a blend, which is our Branca Verde, uh, and that just is a white wine that is similar to a Vino Verde style. So it's 11.5% alcohol, very light. It only was fermented in stainless steel, and it was uh, released early, so it's a very young wine. Um, So that's how that blend came around. Uh, Andy and I like to uh, blend Tariga Nacional kind of joke around that anything Tariga Nacional touches, it just makes it that much better. So Tariga Nacional can, if you leave it on the vines and really ripen it, it can have some massive fruit and some, a lot of, uh, wild tannin aspects of, of, from the seeds. And so it doesn't have for that grape, it doesn't have a lot of finesse and I would say feminine qualities. It's a big macho head, right? So it has a lot of strong, uh, flavors. And so say blending the Triga Nacional with Merlot makes sense to me. Uh, my, both my brother and I believe that Merlot sort of just softens everything and gives it a beautiful feminine quality. And so one of our blends is Triga Nacional with Merlot. And that can go from 60% Triga to 40% Triga, but we try to keep it somewhere in there. Um, each vintage and we do a, every year we'll do a, what we call Cuvée Caramisum. That's a blend of dark purple, but our cuvées are blended closer to harvest. So you have a longer time period of the wines blended together in barrel rather than blending right before bottling. And so I try to do that with all of our wines is if we're going to do a blend, maybe blend it sooner than later so we can have some cellaring time. We can have some time that those flavors integrate um, so the oak integrates properly between the two wines. Uh, and it's just more of a one wine rather than two wines put together right before you bottle. And so the thinking behind the cuvee is that we sort of just smooth out Tariga with the Merlot. That's a pretty wine. Yeah. And then on the other hand, 
I was I was so sad to know that your estate Morvedra from 2019 was sold out, and I see why because it was a beautiful single varietal wine from right there on your estate. Thank you. So there is consistency in our 19, our 20, and I just got done chasing the 2021 yesterday. And um, even though those growing years are very different, the weather is different. Uh, very young vines coming from the estate. Uh, the wine is very similar in each, in each vintage. And, uh, that's something to be really excited about is to be consistent with the estate wines. And that consistency immediately reflects the, uh, care given to the vines during the growing season and the care given to the wine and the cellar. And so, um, I'm not a prideful man, but I do take a lot of pride in, in our practices and, uh, you know, they may not be, uh, always the right way to do things, uh, but they work well in our vineyard and in our cellar, uh, right now. I've heard people say that, um, one of the main benefits of being in your wine club is that you get access to these really small production wines. Yeah. That it seems like you make a lot of wine, but only a small bit of a lot of those. So, uh, my brother and I joke around that we're masochists when it, like, we make our work a lot harder and our lives a lot harder and we enjoy it. Right. And so, um, one of the things that I really like to do, and it can be a pain in the butt some years. One of the things that I really like to do is, you know, pull the best barrel out and taste it, look at the barrel and try to understand why that one single barrel, or maybe these two barrels taste so much different than these other barrels, even though it's the same wine, just cellar differently or cellar in another barrel. So there's one example of, if I have eight barrels of beautiful wine and three barrels really shine, well, when I blend those three barrels with those eight or, you know, the remaining five, uh, we may lose a little bit of that beauty from maybe one or two barrels that really pop out at us. Uh, so sometimes I'll pull that single barrel away. That happened with the 2019 Petit Verdot and the 2019 Grenache. And it also happened with our 2019 uh, One Elm Tempranillo. Um, and so I like to do that. I like to pull out uh, barrels that, you know, kind of talk to me, if you will, uh, after tasting, you know, 10 barrels in a row, you can kind of lose your palate, but if something really jumps out at you, that's something special to me at the moment. So maybe I'll put a piece of tape on that barrel. And so when we revisit them later, uh, we'll remember, okay, this little tape says something really special here or, yeah. or whatever I label that is something special. So, uh, that's just a little reminder two months later to try it again. And if it really does shine, uh, maybe we'll take that out of a, of a blend. Mm -hmm. Um, but also I'm not afraid to work with small amounts of grapes. So, you know, on our vineyard, sometimes we'll have four or 500 pounds of something that may not be enough to fill a barrel. So we may make two kegs out of uh, Sangiovese and have Sangiovese red wine. And so I'm always trying to experiment and, uh, take sort of these classical wine making protocols and apply them to small little lots or, uh, you know, or, or the, the opposite of that, take small ideas and apply them to larger formats. Um, that's just sort of the, uh, I guess, beauty of experimentation. I guess it's easier to do that when you don't have, um, to worry about, having those in distribution, having enough for them to be stocked in a restaurant. Yeah. It seems to me that your model is to sell from the tasting room and wine club. 
It is. So our, our model is uh, tasting room oriented. We want you to come out and see the vines and to sit and look at the pastures that are next to us and to hear the cows moo and to hear the sheep in the back of our uh, property, to hear them and to uh, taste our wine. You know, we can get lost in labels and titles, um, but I'll just tell you that every wine is treated a bit different depending on uh, the quality of the grapes, but I always try to be as minimalistic in our approach to winemaking as possible and to try to remove, um, processes, say like crushing or destemming. Uh, I don't really crush our fruit too much. If at all, uh, our crushers are usually rolled back so that our machine is just destemming. Uh, so that way we retain, um, intact full berries, uh, that aren't crushed, but sometimes we'll crush them so we can, uh, extract more, uh, tannin from the seed and it just drives our wine to a different direction. But for the most part, um, we have the luxury of being a small boutique winery that doesn't have to answer to distribution calls or volume, um, quotas, uh, 99% of our wine is sold out of our tasting room. Um, we have very little, if any, internet sales. Um, and we're, we're, we have some of our wines in a few restaurants, Cabernet Grill in Fredericksburg, and one or two restaurants in the Austin and San Antonio area, and uh, wine shops as well. We have a sandstone winery carries a uh, rosé or two in Mason on the square. And we also have a wine or two in, uh, uh, wine shops in the Austin area. But for the most part that, uh, you know, part of drinking a Dega vino is I think coming out to the tasting room. Well, it does a cool tasting room, yeah. um, a well, bit off of 290, but not, not too far. And, uh, yeah. I know that the hill country is, is hopping right now. A lot going on. Of course, mm-hmm. it's the third largest AVA in the nation. It's got a lot of yeah. uh, a lot of vines, not anywhere near what's going on in the high plains, but still a lot and more more vineyards going in all the time. I just had talked to somebody recently that was interested in buying a property in the hill country and put a bid in for the full asking price of a vineyard, which was $65,000 an acre and was outbid on the first day that it went on the market, which seems crazy to wow. me. But yeah. do you think that that is realistic for agricultural land? What do you think the hill country will look like in 10 years? Let me first start by saying this. What's going on with land prices and whatnot is probably something we'll never see again, or at least I won't see, I don't think, in my lifetime uh, with land prices quadrupling in you know, four years. Let me think about this one for a second. So we can be nerds and break everything down to the one penny mark, right? And we can compare farming in the hill country and we can compare farming uh, to the high plains. And, you know, what's your cost of doing business in each location? That's great for a general sense. There's many different ways to run a business. I'll just tell you what we did at Degavino. We bought the property outright at a price that is a quarter of what it's probably worth today. Uh, 
as far as, you know, the real estate market goes, we did all the work ourselves. Uh, when I say all the work, our very first four acres, my dad and I, my nephews, uh, we pounded the end posts. We, you know, we made all the estimates for how much wire we would need. We, uh, we built the vineyard from ground up. So we didn't have hourly wages for the most part. So that didn't go into our calculations. Root stock was a, a bit cheaper than it is today. And so we planted the vineyard, like I said, in, in two different plantings. I would not say that all of the hill country is suitable for growing grapes. You need to have soil and water. Now you can grow some grapes on a stone hillside and mimic what they do in France and Italy and other areas where they grow on hillsides. Um, and you have the right to decide, you know, what you're going to do and how you're going to grow. And, and that's fine. That's your business. But I'd argue that grapevines really aren't any different than any other agricultural crop. So you need to have nutrients. You need to have soil. You need to have air movement. And you need to have clean water. Given all of that, all four of those things, that really limits you in the hill country and where you can grow. Unfortunately, the prices in the hill country are are skyrocketing daily. I believe that in the next 20 years, we're going to have a lot more grapevines planted in the hill country. Um, I'd like to see 1623 between Blanco and us full of vineyards. I think it's a really great place to grow. But it is going to minimalize the ability of the average person to buy acreage and plant. Yeah, for sure. Right now there's a big boom to get hill country wineries, uh, within the Johnson city, Fredericksburg, or let's say Austin to, uh, Fredericksburg. You know, a lot of people are coming from out of state. Um, there's a lot of people just getting into winemaking because they see that there's tourism and they see that they can sell a bottle for X amount. Um, I'm not going to get into like the politics and my feelings on all of that. Uh, for the most part, I'm just going to kind of stick to what I know and that's, uh, growing grapes and making wine and, uh, my friends and the people who I talk to, um, grow grapes and they make wine. So I don't really have like, uh, some like vision for what this whole area is going to be. I think that if you don't grow grapes, you know, you're kind of missing part of that. Um, as being a, a hill country winery, the wineries that don't grow grapes at all, um, you know, that's their choice. They can continue to do what they want to do, but you know, let's not call it hill country wine unless it was grown in the hill country and you made the wine, you know, but that's just how I feel. So that's the only political thing I'm going to say. I know there's an effort underway to add some sub AVAs in the Texas hill country. Yes. Is that something that's important to you? That is a very important topic. And I don't really know the exact working mechanisms of how sub AVAs are delineated from uh, larger AVAs. That'd be an excellent question to ask Chris Brundrett, who's doing an awesome job at um, lobbying and, and not just him, but the Texas wine growers and people in his, uh, that organization are really spearheading the effort to make into Texas law rules on labeling that will reflect the place and that place is exactly where those grapes are grown and produced. Keep on going back to Mason County. So let's go back to Mason County and talk about Rob Parr's vineyard. Even though his vineyard's in the Texas Hill Country, he's 60 miles from Stonewall. His weather's different. His his uh 
Grape varieties are different. His soil profiles are different. The enzymes living in the soils, the microbes, they're different. They they help shape the grape and, and what will become of the finished product. To put Mason County and the Bilger family estate vineyard in the same category as far as location and terroir is completely, uh, you know, it looks good on a label and it gives you an idea of where that, that wine came from, but it's not a, it's not as specific as other uh, areas in the world where if you look at a bottle and you see an AOC labeling, you understand exactly where that region is, maybe the practices in farming and making wine. But if you look at a label here in the Texas Hill Country and it says Texas Hill Country, well, is that Mason County? Is that Stonewall? Is that San Saba? It's just giving a general location and it doesn't touch upon the farming techniques or the winemaking. So what Chris is trying to do and what the Texas wine growers are trying to do is pass legislation to to make into law uh, location and how that reflects on labeling, but to also create sub-AVAs. An example of a sub-AVA in the Hill Country would be Mason County in an area that hasn't been delineated yet for an AVA, but has been delineated by the United States Geological Survey, and that would be the Pernaus River Basin. So that would be two very distinctly different areas within the Hill Country. If we want to talk about the Pernaus River Basin, which is just sort of a, a common term that uh, Doug Lewis uses, I use, uh, a few of the other wineries in the area use to describe just the very area between Fredericksburg and Johnson City, sometimes a mile, two miles on each side of the river, just that small little area that's, for the most part, similar soils, very similar climates. That would be a sub-AVA of the hill country. Another area that they're working on is the Lano Uplift, which you'd think of, you know, north of Marble Falls. And a big old triangle going out east and west, northeast and northwest from Marble Falls. That would be the Lano Uplift. And that's just another set of uh, different soil types, a little different weather. Um, Mason County is also on that map to be a sub-AVA. And that's just to really delineate from these large regions like the Hill Country. Well, that's something that that we'll be watching as the next... I know those things take a lot of time, but over the next year or two or three... A lot of our uh, estate wines on the back label say um, the soils are part of the Pernaus River Basin. Um, so someday we'd like to see that actually, uh, be a, a recognized area. Mm-hmm. I guess if you're getting a lot of grapes out of Mason County, you could use Mason County as the Appalachian. Yes. Mason yeah. County. Mason County. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people already put that on the front label and with these new labeling laws, we'll be saying that a lot more, but, uh, yeah, that'll be a nice addition, I think as a sub ABA. Mm-hmm. Well, where can people connect with um, Bilger Family Vineyards and Adega Vino. So you can connect by just calling uh, the winery, going to the website, which is adegavino.com. You can follow all of the estate and winemaking um, picture stories, if you will, on uh, Instagram. We have a Facebook presence. Uh, but our Instagram, we have an Adega Vino Instagram and a Bilger Family Vineyards Instagram. The Adega Vino Instagram is more of a, our marketing outlet. 
uh, for our wines, whether it's high plains, hill country, just any wines we're producing, um, uh, event going on, personal stuff, fun things on the Adega Vino Instagram. But then Bilger Family Vineyards Instagram is our state vineyard and all the going ons in the season with our state vineyard. Um, if we win any awards from our state wines, we'll kind of uh, show off there. And then once we're into harvest, we like to, I like to have a lot of kind of live uh, videos or pictures of, of the cellar and the processing of fruit and the fermentation of the wines. It's always a fun thing to get an inside look to that. So, um, yeah, visit us on the Internet. Do you guys take volunteer labor for uh, Harvest? We do. Yeah, so Harvest is a fun thing for everyone. We do uh, you know, a series of Harvests at our estate, and uh, we usually send out emails. If you call up during our hours at the tasting room, um, someone will answer, and you can just directly ask them, and we'll send you an email, keep you updated on all that. Um, and then, uh, cool. you know, I, like, I always like to talk grapes and talk winemaking, especially people who are really new to it because there there can be a lot of questions when it comes to growing grapes and is it the right thing to do? Am I doing the wrong thing? And I can always steer you to what we know. So we always encourage people to reach out to us and ask questions. So try to give you the right answer. (laughs) Thanks, Michael. Be sure to follow what's going on at Adega Vino and Bilger Family Vineyards on Instagram. Before we wrap this up, here's a quick tip. Albarino and Alvarino are the same grape. Alvarino is the Portuguese spelling and pronunciation with a V like Victor, and Albarino with a B like boy is the Spanish spelling and pronunciation. It's what's most common in other parts of the world, too. Courtney Schleisel, in an article for Vine Pear, says, Whether called Albarino or Alvarino, This grape has an inherent set of characteristics that hold true whether grown in Spain or Portugal, or perhaps Texas. With bright acidity and subtle but plentiful aromatics, Albarino is like Viognier on the nose and Riesling on the palate. Ripe peach, apricot, and citrus meet orange blossom, rocky minerality, and often a saline character. It's enticing and refreshing a more interesting alternative to Pinot Grigio on a hot day, and the perfect accompaniment to fresh seafood, which is the specialty of both of its homelands. Other than Adega Vino, you'll see the name Albarino on most bottles of this variety in Texas. A few that I really enjoy in Texas include the Albarino from Hilmi, Grower Project, Pedernalis, and English Newsome. Outside of Texas, one classic worth finding is Albarino from... Soliero. It's from the Vino Verde region of Portugal, and it's about $25. Well, that's it for now. Don't forget to get your tickets to Toast of Texas and keep on spreading the word about this podcast to help it grow. You can get in touch with me by emailing texaswinepod at gmail.com, and I'm at texaswinepod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Show notes are at thisistexaswine.com, and that's also where you can support the podcast and help me cover the cost of my new podcasting equipment. While you're there, sign up for my email newsletter. Thanks to Texas Wine Lover website for promotional assistance. Visit txwinelover.com to help plan your next winery visit. I'll be back in two weeks with another episode. I'll be talking with Ricky Taylor of Altamarfa. 
Until then, cheers, y'all.